Tonight on This Is Vinyl Tap, Desperate Dan, Dark and Misty House, where no Christian has been, Fat Uncle Charlie boozing it with his friends, and God darn it. In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. I wrote it to be a flop. I moved to a bigger house and wanted to write about England and imaginary people and myths and legends that I made up. I was away with the fairies. That's a quote by the composer of this album about his album. Tonight we're doing the Kinks album. The Kinks are the Village Green Preservation Society. Their most highly regarded album and a remarkable album. One of the things that's remarkable about it is how little attention and appreciation it got when it first came out. Tonight... We have a special guest from New Hampshire. (laughs) J.M. Jonathan Rowe is outside the boundaries of Texas, up in one of those small states that share a puzzle piece. (laughs) J.M., say hi to the folks. Hello, everyone from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And Tony, uh, thank yourself. Uh, You're safely in South Austin. I am in God's country, South Austin. In your closet. In my closet is true, but it, it is still in the middle of God's country. This is a album with a theme that's a little bit unusual for rock and roll. Uh, it's uh, focusing on the changes going on in England at the time, post-war England. And there's some uh, sentimentality about uh, old things disappearing. And Tony, on our show, you are uh, the guy that usually brings us new things um you're the youngest one so basically you hate everything old and i just wanted to ask you uh, are you able to like this album even though it has that uh, theme running through it uh yeah doug this is uh easily one of my desert island discs um i i do i do want to say something before we get started though just because i think it's worth talking about um, I, I came into this album very late in life. I didn't, I didn't really discover it till I was in my probably mid thirties. I'm 51 now, uh, very, uh, almost around the exact same time that Odyssey, I discovered Odyssey and Oracle. Gone, 
So those two albums are linked in my mind in a lot of ways because I fell in love with both of those albums at the same time. And they're both, in my opinion, very similar in kind of what they represented when they were recorded. They both came out the same year, 1968. Um, And they both both are kind of the antithesis of what rock and roll was in 1968. So, you know, that. But that being said, uh, the cop, someone ripped me a copy of a version of this they had and gave it to me. And it is not the version that we're necessarily going to be talking tonight. It was a version that came out uh, that was released very limitedly, uh, and we'll get into the history of that, but it's their 12-song version versus the 15-song version. And uh, and it's the version I fell in love with. It's a version that has Mr. Songbird and Days on it. Thank you for the day. It's the version I still prefer. Um, it doesn't have Animal Farm, Sitting by the Riverside, Big Sky, and Last of the Steam Powered Trains. Those were those were put on the 15-song version, and the two songs I mentioned were taken off. But uh, So it's interesting listening to this album in the 15-song version because it just sounds slightly odd to me because I'm missing those two songs so much. Um, and we, we can talk about that more, but I just wanted to put that out there. And I know JM and I... And you talked about this a little bit before the podcast. That's the same version he fell in love with was the version I fell in love with, which is weird considering it's supposedly so rare. <laughs> but I guess yeah. in this day and age, when you can get almost copies of anything, it's not as rare as we like to think it is. The songs they left off, it, it's criminal that they that those songs are left off. I, I agree. <laughs> and they seem version. in a weird way, they seem to be kind of counter to the theme of what Ray Davies is trying to. And we're uh, three of us are going to pronounce his last name Davies tonight, not Davis for the people in over <laughs> across the pond. Maybe uh, that will get something fired up enough to write. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just interesting that they took they took those songs off because it's I agree yeah. with you. It's almost criminal. Uh, I, I want to, uh, for the sake of our listeners right now, let's let's talk about what a great album it is. Uh, my two uh, compadres here are focused on two songs that got removed and probably want to spend the rest of the night talking about that. But <laughs> I would like us to move on a little bit. Uh, here's a quote for you. You know, I want you two to tell me who said this. For me, Village Green Preservation Society is Ray's masterwork. It's his Sergeant Pepper. It what it's what makes him the definitive pot p- poet laureate. Pete Townsend. You nailed it. Yeah. Damn, he nailed it while you just sat there. <laughs> That's right. It was Pete Townsend. I, and, uh, I mean, full disclosure, I love this album and I've read a lot about it. I, and so, yeah, I'd seen that quote a, a bunch. Um, in fact, the wow. album influ- influenced Pete Townsend right. considerably. Yeah. We'll get into that more when we talk about this individual songs, but um, yeah. despite being a very well critically acclaimed album, well reviewed even when it came out, but even more so later, this album here's here's another interesting fact: something else by the Kinks, and the Kinks are the Village Green Preservation Society, sold a total of twenty five thousand copies wow meanwhile an album that came out the same day as the kinks are the village green preservation society (laughs) the white album by comparison it sold 
two million copies its first week. And, and who was that? Who was that band that released the White Album? They just disappeared, and no one even talks about them anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and, they and misspelled their name too. And, and we've we've talked about we talked about this a little bit as well before we started the fact that the Kinks, if you look at their discography, their studio discography, never broke the top ten in the U.S. in terms of their studio albums. And considering they were one of, along with the Beatles, um, one of the forebears of the British invasion, and I think people think of them kind of, you know, there's there's a certain set of bands that were in that first wave. Um, mm-hmm. It's incredible. And their his, they had such a long storied history. It's amazing yeah. to think that they didn't even get close to breaking the top 10 until 1979. It, it, just yeah, remarkable. It just, yeah. this, uh, this was the last album with the original lineup on it, too. They... Um, started off just doing that. You really got me the, the just that kind of power chord. Stuff. I mean, even then they were kind of. Uh, a little bit original and using distorted guitars and everything, but still there was nothing that could foretell the thing that was about to come. I mean, they almost sounded like a garage band, like, like the Trogs. They were. Yeah. Yeah. And And then, you know, uh, uh, Dave Daisies, he cut this speaker loose on the cabinet and, uh, to get that, that strange sound that's, that's so famous now. Yeah. And so, yeah, so what Doug's talking about is he couldn't couldn't understand why he couldn't get a, a distorted sound from his his guitar. And for you really got me. He uh, actually got scissors and cut the bell of his is the cone in his amp so that it would actually sh- the paper rattle actually would rattle more so he could get some much more of a distorted sound. So that's a, that's a very unique sound and it comes and from a very unique right. guitar solo that blew yeah. everybody away. And uh, a lot of people uh, said that they didn't believe he did it. I'm going to do something I do a lot, and I apologize. I'm going to take brief issue with not knowing that this was coming down the pike, if you will. Um, and that's because I think they dabbled in this stuff already. Considerably. I mean, Waterloo Sunset was recorded before this album came out, right? Well, he- Yeah, I was going further back. Let's rattle off some kink hits because uh, if you ask somebody walking down the street, uh, what are the kinks hits? They probably will tell you three. And then if you start rattling them off, they'll go, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Really got me is the one that saved them. They were about to go down the tubes and uh, that came out. And then right after that came uh, all All day day and all the night. Yeah. 
Yeah, and tired of waiting for you. So tired, tired of waiting, tired of waiting for you. There's a group out there that needs to have it explained to them. The Kinks did not copy Van Halen. When they did, <laughs> you really got me. <laughs> yeah, you, no. I don't know if anybody's made more money off the Kinks than Van Halen. <laughs> I wonder if the Kinks made more money off of Van Halen than they did off themselves. <laughs> James, can you tell us about the members of this band? Uh, uh, this is, as Tony said, they, these guys, this is their sixth album, and yep. uh, they made it all the way here together, but after this, it's over as far as some of them go. So the... The members were Ray Davies and his brother, Dave Davies, uh, who famously did not get along. Dave was the lead guitarist. Ray was the main songwriter, uh, rhythm guitarist, and he occasionally played keyboards. Then you had this guy named Pete Quaife, who was the bass player. And then you had Mick Avery, who actually wound up playing with them for a long time after this uh, on drums. I think he played with them till 1984. Yeah, That's right. I saw him on their. I saw him on his last tour uh, in 1984. Um, so yeah, he played. With, he was their longtime drummer. So after that, it was just kind of a uh, revolving door of guys that were sometimes session players and become members of the band. Um, you would have different bass players. At one time, they had the bass player for uh the zombies as there yeah, was jim rockford he was also i yeah. think in argent for a little while as well yeah yeah so i saw him on that 1984 tour and a lot of people think that after this group split it just the kinks were kind of lost for a little while until they started hitting their stride again i guess in the late 70s and early 80s where they, mtv started getting more popular or they started getting more popular with, with their videos and and all that but they kind of went through a a wandering period after this album. Another guy who's on this album that we need to talk about is Nicky Hopkins. Yeah. And, and if you don't know who Nicky Hopkins is, chances are you've heard him play. He was the main keyboardist. For, Unless you're me. <laughs> <laughs> he was the main keyboardist for the Rolling Stones from like the late 60s until the, I think even up until the mid 70s. Um, he's most famous probably for the piano part in Like a Rainbow. He played the piano on Angie. He played a lot of the keyboard parts on Exile on Main Street. And he and Ray Davies had a longtime feud because of his yeah. role on this album. Uh, he plays most of the Mellotron on it, I believe. But I think Ray Davies took credit for, for that. Mm -hmm. I think Nicky Hopkins was, says he played about 70% of it. And, uh, yeah. and he didn't get credit for that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, he, but he, he did come back later, so I guess he didn't stay uh, stay mad. One of yeah, the recurring themes tonight will be people getting mad at Ray Davies. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
One yeah, interesting was- thing about the players that I came across was that I, I did not realize that Ray Davies w- did not want to be the singer of this band at the beginning. And uh, they were they were actively ser- searching for singers. And they they came across one um, Roderick David Stewart. who um, <laughs> You guys probably know the name. He went on to play with Jeff Beck and then was in the faces. And uh, he had some success later in a solo career. But that <laughs> when didn't he got sexy. <laughs> oh, don't bring that up. That's. We, you're going to make me say about three of the saddest days in rock and roll. <laughs> Again, if you bring that up. But uh, in the end, it was Ray who who sang, and uh, th- there's others that take a couple of that sing occasionally. But I think he's a fine singer. He's he's, he's constantly underrated as a singer. In well, fact, let's just cut to the facts right now. This is everyone's favorite underrated band in the world. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? I mean, lots of times that's kind of a hyperbole statement, but when you look at their, I mean, historically, when you look at how they charted, they really are significantly underrated. But we, uh, we need to say at the very beginning, they, they there was a time where they were at the top. They had well, a short period where they were at the top of the British invasion and they were all that and they had the screaming girls and all that yeah. other stuff. It didn't last very long. Well, um, and this yeah. album didn't help. So I think it. I think it's worth mentioning that these guys, as JM mentioned, the brother. Not only did the brothers not get along, the band was was infamous for not getting along. There's this pretty fantastic story about them playing in in Cardiff, Wales, in '65, and uh, right after they started their first song, "You Really Got Me," Dave Davies evidently kicked over the drum set, Mick Avery's drum set, and started hurling insults at him so avery got up and smacked dave davies over the head with his hi-hat and not his hi-hat stand and knocked him out cold on the stage i mean out cold and then avery split he ran off because he thought he'd killed him he ran off the stage and out of the out of the building (laughs) and uh, the cops caught up with him and uh he said oh that was just part of the act we're always beating each over the head he actually ended up talking himself out of it he didn't kill dave dave ended up getting i don't know 15 or 16 stitches in his head, I think, spent some time in the hospital. So that was kind of their, their, you know, MO when they, when they were touring, they were also a pretty hard drinking band too. So I think there was a lot of, a lot of yeah. boozing going on as well, but they get to the States and, and they had issues with, with, uh, you know, the touring and the, and the, and they had issues with the, uh, you know, all their, sorts of their stuff. manager was, uh, their, was was useless and and left them high and dry right but uh the ultimate thing happened when they when they ended up making the american federation of musicians angry uh there's some speculation as to as to why that is i've heard that it was had something to do with dave davies not in a contract dispute but the the more interesting story is it happened when they were about to go on the dick cavett show so they're in the back uh you know green room or whatever the dick cavett show and they're about to go on and, uh, the, and this is Ray Davies talks about this as in his biography. Some guy who said he works for the TV company shows up and starts making all these anti-British comments saying things like, you know, just because the Beatles did it, every mop, mop top spotty face 
limey juvenile thinks they can come over here and make a career. He starts saying stuff like that, calls them a bunch of commie wimps. Then the guy says, evidently, that when the Russians take over the UK, don't expect us to come save you this time. Uh, And then he says he's going to file a report and they'll never work in the US. Anyway, needless to say, this is what Ray says about it. It says the rest is kind of a blur, but he does recall being pushed and swinging a punch and being punched back. So he ended up getting in a fight with this guy from the Dick Cavett show. Anyway, long story short. Anyone want to guess what uh, Ray Davies did for uh, sport during (laughs) high school? Was he a boxer? He Boxing. was a boxer. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, a, and a good one. Yeah, but um, anyway, so what happens is they end up, the American Federation of Musicians ends up banning them. They were the organization charged with get, or in charge of getting work visas to musicians coming over, and they just essentially said we wouldn't give them a work visa for four years. So, <laughs> and four uh, crucial years. Oh, yeah. They were. So, what, what Ray says about that was, uh, when the, by the time they were allowed to return in 1969, uh, you know, Amer- music had changed and what American uh, audiences wanted to hear had changed and no one had really been keeping up to speed with them. Uh, they, he says the Woodstock generation had arrived and the kinks were almost forgotten. That's a quote for him. And this just gives a little context. Their last top 40 song in the sixties was Sun- sunny afternoon, which is number 14 in 1966. And they didn't get another hit until uh, Lola. Um, So they were banned. They had this essentially in in musical exile. So that's the context in which Ray Davies and the Kinks find themselves in the middle of, of, you know, kind of at the beginning of this four year uh, ban. And so he says that it just caused him to turn in, turn inward and start looking at um, at his surroundings. Uh, you know, he started getting more into the folk folk tradition in Great Britain. He began, you know, really assessing his Englishness and and writing these very personal songs about, as as Doug had mentioned earlier, uh, the how the UK was changing in post World War II um, era. Yeah. You know, yeah, I don't think you could find a more album about british life than this one at least in in rock and roll i i I don't know a lot of albums that talk about british life but i know that we said earlier doug i think said this in the moody blues episode that the moody blues may be the most british band rock band i i think the kinks might have a give them a run for their money yeah Yeah. well they're they're they represent two different uh (laughs) aspects of we have the the london they're from uh Muswell Hill. There it is. So, uh, anyway, back to what Tony was saying. The the Kinks are extremely British in my mind, uh, and and that tied them to the Moody Blues, who are also extremely British in my mind. And the two uh, bands represent something else. Uh, if you'll remember, I said that if I could be in any band that we've talked about, I would choose to be a member of the Moody Blues just because of the way uh, they conducted themselves. Uh, on the same <laughs> token, if I could choose any band not to be a member of, it would be definitely, it would be the Kinks. Yeah. It was all fireworks all the time. And uh, I'm sure somebody's done an in-depth study on Dave Davies and Ray Davies and their relationship. I saw an interview with Ray Davies where he just talked about 
how his brother and 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 um they how they fought all the time but he said i wouldn't trade the telepathy we had for anyone else and yeah. so it's a strange strange um relationship and it reminds me of this album a little bit because i feel like there's there's a lot of sarcasm about England on this album mm -hmm, and there's yeah. some sarcasm especially on the next album Arthur uh but there's also love and I feel like uh it's it's like a family member you can criticize your brother all you want but if someone else from outside criticizes right. your brother you're gonna punch him in the face and <laughs> I think Ray Davies feels exactly the same way about England yeah, it feels like that. Um, yeah. His relationship with the with Great Britain and and you know, absolutely. That's a real um, common thing in in art. Uh, I think of um, here in Texas. I think of oh, Larry McMurtry. Yeah, in mm -hmm. in Texas, it's Larry McMurtry where he writes like he loves Texas, and then in the next paragraph, he writes like he hates it. Garrison Keillor writes like he loves. Uh, his hometown, and then he writes like he despises it at the same time. And I get that same feeling with this album. No, yeah. but you're right. It, 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 you're right. It's, it's, it is like at once reverential and sarcastic. And that's another one, another thing I noticed about this album. There's almost two songs about everything. Mm -hmm. there's, there's two songs about uh, childhood friends. There's two songs about the village green, and there's two songs about. Um, picture books or uh, you know photo albums yep. and there's two songs about sexy ladies yeah <laughs> one was a childhood friend one was a prostitute okay so let's what real quick before we dive in let, let's give a little bit of a history there are several versions of this album originally ray davies wanted this to be a 20 song double double well, album and before I you start that Originally, he wanted it to be. <laughs> hold on. Originally, he wanted it to be a solo album, and then he wanted it to to be a twenty-song uh, double album, and then it be, he whittled it down to twelve songs, and that was released in what was it? Norway and Ireland. It was uh, Norway, France, Italy, Sweden, and New Zealand. Okay, so that that was the. And that's the version that Tony and I have come to know and fall in love with. And then it was re-released in the United States with several songs removed from it, two of our favorite songs removed from it, and it became a 15-song single album. And that's the one we are going to review tonight. Yeah, the, uh, the record company hated the idea of a double album because the kinks were not a commercial success at that point their last single which was is it wonder boy yeah um flopped yeah. horribly and the company was pretty nervous about it so when ray davies came to them and said hey i want to make this double album about you know nostalgic uh, songs about the uk they went <laughs> no um and 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 so yeah he did the 12 song version and then they they were they were going to release it and he said oh, oh wait 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 can i really want to do this double album they said okay here's a concession you can add you can have 15 songs yeah and uh and i think they actually went back in the studio and record and, and after he got that concession and recorded big sky and last of the steam powered trains i don't think they had recorded those yet before the 15 thing um and yet 
Yeah, it's a weird deal. I I don't I don't know. And again, Doug, we're not going to talk all night about the two songs that are <laughs> off and the four songs they added. But yeah, it's it's, it's hard to find the rationale for why he did it anywhere. Yeah. I have no idea why he did it, and I couldn't find anything about why he did it unless he thought he needed to rock the album up a little bit because both of those songs are are more. I mean, yeah. for this album, they're more kind of hard rocking than than anything else except for you know the the one about the witch in the neighborhood or whatever but yeah. um so well, if there's anything brother. we've learned doing this podcast is that no one agrees on why certain songs end up and why certain songs get cut we had the th- same thing last last week with uh bob dylan yeah uh, it's yeah, and I know you guys are butt hurt because two songs you like a lot don't show up. Uh, on it, it has nothing to do with that. It has to do okay. with the fact that it's, uh, in our opinion, and I don't want to speak for you, J.M., although I seem to talk over you a lot, I apologize, <laughs> is that uh, is that it's a far superior sequencing of the album. The album ending with the song Days is perfect. Yeah. Perfect. I agree. Um, so it's just it's just a little weird anomaly that he ripped those songs off and, and put those on, especially... You know, a song I think maybe at least two of us would would say is not a very good song in general when we get to it. Um, Anyway, Well, uh, I promised the audience we wouldn't talk about that all night. And we've we've got about (laughs) four minutes left to talk about other things. Uh, (laughs) The name of this album is The Kinks Are the Village Green uh, Preservation Society. And the first song is... The Village Green Preservation Society. We are the Village Green Preservation Society. God save the old duck for the bill and variety. We are the desperate and appreciation society. God save strawberry jam with all the different varieties. I love this song and it's stuck in my head. All right. Jam, can you say what you usually say about songs that start off albums? Because I think it's <laughs> deserving of this one. It makes you boo. Makes me boo. No, 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 no Jam. <laughs> that's the wrong. That's the wrong thing. That's the wrong okay. Jamism. Okay, this is. There's no better way to start off an album. There than, you go. Than this song, it is especially a, an album called the Village Green Preservation Society. Yes, but it is a fantastic song. The the very first bar of this song made me fall in love with this album uh, I, I wanted to hear more it starts off on the chorus and um the, the harmonies on that beginning line are just it's just beautiful it reminds uh, me the same way uh waterloo uh sun yeah. starts out yeah yeah well and uh and i love that little i guess it's an organ because i think this is one of the few songs that doesn't actually have a mellotron on it that little part in it that's just it's just grabs me every time uh yeah i yeah i felt the same way as you did the first time i heard this uh it was it was it was the same way not to bring up odyssey and oracle again but i love that album as well it's the same way when i heard the first first chords of uh carousel 44 I thought yeah. this is unlike anything I've ever heard before. Yet mm-hmm. it's it's almost perfect. Well, he, it's, he's he's sentimental about uh, the way England's changing. The way uh, you know it, it it fits today. It's uh, same kind of thing where people get upset about mom and pop stores disappearing and getting right. replaced by Walmart. And yeah, uh, it's it's the uh, 
the thing I like about Ray Davies is he never had a, a, a war with adulthood like most rock and roll stars do. And uh, he sounds like an adult on this album, um, mm-hmm. which is really just I, I think he's in his, still in his early 20s. But it's it's very strange the side he takes on a lot of these issues. It's not the um, if you compare it to the clash, they were going to tear everything down and start over again. But uh, he's yeah. he's about preserving things. It's it is it is probably the least hip uh, viewpoint of a rock band <laughs> to embrace in 1968 as this guy. It, embraces it would be harder to be less hip. I, I tell yeah. you, one of the things that's important about this album that I forgot to mention earlier that is uh, very important to this podcast is this is an album. It yep. is it yeah. is a complete thing. They're not an album. It's not the collection of hits with a couple of fillers thrown in. Uh, it's it's one piece built to be that way. And this is really the part. This is the time in rock and roll where that started happening all over the place. And uh, the, the Kinks are on the, you know, the Kinks were innovators on a lot of things. Uh, they, Absolutely. What's the song they had? Uh, they had the Raj sound, uh, and it came out months before uh, the Beatles were putting the sitar on Norwegian wood. But uh, they they jumped on um, on the Indian music thing before the other bands that did it later uh, did. Uh, they they were ahead in a lot of things, and they were right on top of the, the idea of a full album and, and not a collection of hits. Do you know who Desperate Dan is? Do I? Yeah. I do. Is it going to ruin it if I say yes? No, I want you to say who it is. I'm asking you. It's a cartoon character. Uh, he, from the, uh, he was a guy in the American West um, that was in British cartoons. Uh, that Americans don't know about because we don't read British cartoons but, <laughs> and we don't recognize the American West when we see it on British TV or comic books. Well, and, and uh, I read that Donald Duck talked about in the song is not the Donald Duck. I mean, it could be implied that, but what, what Ray said was there was a, there was a girl that looked like a duck when he grew yeah. up. She had big lips and they called her Donald Duck. So she <laughs> threw she, her into she, the song. Too bad she didn't make it to the Instagram days. That's what all the girls want, the big uh, duck lips. Well, I always and, wondered why he threw that line in there. I had no idea what it was. Well, that's interesting. I didn't know that either. And uh, I never cared for Donald Duck, so I was wishing he would have picked uh, Bugs Bunny or Yosemite <laughs> Sam or somebody I like. Or the, the, What's the rooster? Yeah, you better not say Pepe Le Pew these days. Uh, I guess he got canceled, huh? I say, I say, I say now, boy. <laughs> um, let's move on. Uh, do you remember Walter? This is one of the easiest songs to figure out what it's about that's ever been written. Yeah. But but it's such a great song, too. Um, God, it's such a, I mean, it's like a one-two punch. These first two songs, you know, Jam, you were talking about the first time you heard it. It's like, okay, Village Green Preservation Society's over with. And then this, yeah, this song piano comes. piece kicks in, yeah. which, of course, yeah. a band, another band ripped off.
three of us had the exact same. I had. I was like, "What the hell?" But, but I, I will I believe I will, it when I heard. It. I will say that I will say this about this is ELO we're talking about. I've got a real kind of love hate relationship with that band because they they tried to bring the kind of music I love, this pop Beatles pop music, into the into the forefront. But for some reason, they felt the need to disco it up, which is really <laughs> problematic to me. Um, anyway, well, once again, Tony is wrong, and he's also a horrible person. ELO <laughs> is a fantastic band. So um, again, talking about old people, you know, when he, I guess when I was younger, when he hits the line about talking about Walter being home at half past eight, I'd be like, ah, yeah. now I'm thinking that didn't sound so bad nowadays. <laughs> Well, you know, he's, he, he, it's about his childhood friend and he, I guess he kept up with him, but he just kind of remembered him like getting a little larger than he was yeah. when he was uh, a child. Now he's a friend. grocer. He's a, he used yeah. to work there. Now he's the, the head dude. I was just, yeah. it's about all those guys, you knew in elementary school and, yeah. uh, this was before Facebook. <laughs> now you find out what those guys are doing on Facebook. <laughs> this song has the Mellotron on it. We talk yeah. about the Mellotron a lot on this. I think it plays like some sort of brass instrument. I don't know what it is, but you can, yeah. you yeah. can tell. Yeah. Almost every instrument that doesn't sound like a guitar, a guitar or a piano is a the Mellotron. The Mellotron. Yeah. The chameleon of instruments. Yes. So uh, if, if, if you're not familiar with the Mellotron, uh, listen to our Moody Blues podcast. Or go to the uh, Facebook, Facebook page, page and see a really cool video posted by uh, young Jonathan Earl himself. It is uh, a cool video. It is. And Mellotron, I can't believe it works. It looks like such a complicated uh, disaster. It looks like someone <laughs> would think that up and it would just be a disaster. <laughs> uh, picture like, book is next. And this thing got stuck in my head for quite some oh. time. This was like, actually uh, this actually got a little bit of popularity later in life because it was part of a Hewlett Packard commercial in the early 2000s. Never, I think. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, it's very kink sounding song. Mm -hmm. I, I agree with that. Um, you know, you know, the drummer removed the snare snares off of his snare drum to make it sound right? differently yeah and jam you're gonna have to explain to the to the folks in the audience what that would do because i i'm like oh that sounds interesting but i have no idea what that does the thing that makes us gives a snare drum its uh resonance is this these uh metal bands that are underneath it and when you take those bands off and you just hit the top of the snare it's it's like a very very tight sounding um drum it, it gives it a very almost want to say a hollow sound but a very tight hollow sound like you're hitting this the uh the side of a hollow tree a <laughs> there's a great story drum. about this song that dave davies tells about how he was uh they're halfway through the song and he starts doing some sort of jazz improvisation he says like joe stafford i don't know whatever um but he's like doing this little jazz improvisation and he said you can almost hear ray mimicking him 
or singing across him as he's doing it. And that's where the, the Scooby Dooby Doo thing comes from. Because he's making right? fun. Yeah, he's making fun of his brother while they're yeah, while he's doing yeah. this, he's like Scooby Dooby Doo. Yeah. I thought just like they were getting into some sort of Americana or thing, but I think that's I love that part of that. Well, jazz is Americana, JM. Yeah. <clears throat> Thank you. Um Johnny Thunder's next. Johnny Another just fantastic song. <laughs> My favorite song on the album. I it's not mine, but boy, I I can't knock you for it being your favorite song. It's such a great song. It is such a great song, and I have absolutely no idea what it's about, but I just love about the Spiker. Well, there's there's two stories. They both both Ray and Dave have like a competing story about it. I think they're both they both say it's about a biker. Uh, Ray says it's about a guy kind of riding around, and uh, the um, and Dave says it's about a guy they knew who ended up hitting a roundabout. And, and he said this way, he says, it goes, the story is one day his footrest hit the road. He toppled. And that was the end of Johnny Thunder. <laughs> That's what actually, Dave put it. Actually, well, I take um, that back. I, I read he was the neighborhood bully who. But, yeah, that, I did read that he died later. But, based uh, on a, a famous character in a movie. Uh, anybody, 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 anybody. Marlon Brando. And what movie? Wild Wild Ones. Anybody Um, know a uh, anybody know a band that has a guitarist to use that for his stage name? What Johnny Thunder? Yeah, yeah, the New York Dolls. There we go. We got a lot of now. Did he? I guess I'm assuming he had to purposely pick that name from this song. I think so. I've never talked to him though. He added. He added. Well, he's dead now. He added an S to it. Johnny Thunder's. That's really throw, throws you off. It does. You know, supposedly this song influenced Go to the Mirror by The Who. And you can kind of hear that if you listen yeah. to the beginning part of Go to the Mirror. He seems to be completely unreceptive. The test I gave him showed no sense at all. Okay, so it again talking about this album and this band influencing Pete Townsend. Yeah, yeah. you know it's this band had two lives. There was the commercial flop, and then its enormous uh, critical acclaim and the enormous uh, love that other musicians and critics had for it. So it sounds very similar to Odyssey and Oracle. It does. We always seem to get these albums that take a couple of years to be appreciated. Yep. Speaking of oh. not appreciating things, oh, uh, hold on. Yeah. So one thing I want to last thing I want to say about this song is that the, the acoustic guitar parts on this uh-huh. remarkable. Yeah. It, I don't know that anyone had ever played guitar like that before. It's almost like power chord acoustic guitar. You know. Yeah. This is one of the first times I'd ever heard a guitar, an acoustic guitar played right. like that. And and it's funny because yeah, if you listen to the song we mentioned by the Who, it's that same sort of acoustic guitar power chordsy thing. The way that song starts off, you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I agree with you. This song is so fantastic. It's it's uh, it's one I almost always want to hit repeat on. Yeah, you know, it's a good one. And uh, as you can tell, both these guys are trying to stall so we don't have to go <laughs> to the next song. Absolutely. Last of the steam powered trains. Uh. Like the last of the good 
Yeah, like I mentioned earlier, this is one of the last songs they recorded, um, and it was not on the 12-track original version. So I went a good chunk of my life without not knowing this song, which I don't regret. Um, but uh, The least interesting Ray Davies song I think I've ever heard. Yeah. Um, it, it's just not... I have no idea why he put it on there. It's got his like attempted blues harp um harmonica on it and i will say there's an interesting bass part on it at some point but i mean overall this is just why put this what does this have to do with anything else the bucolic nature it it does not fit no, it doesn't fit. Well, it fits. Uh, the music doesn't, but the, the uh, concept. Of, yeah, you're right. The and, theme and, does fit. And the thing, what's the song about, Doug? Well, the Kinks, uh, or excuse me, Ray thinks it's about the Kinks and how they were becoming a little bit obsolete. And, uh, you know, Ray was such a hit machine. I kind of think if he wanted to, if he had to do it to save his daughter's life, I think he could have started popping out hits. But um, I don't think he wanted to. I don't think he was interested. When I hear him talking about uh, uh, all day and all of the night, or uh, I, I, he just doesn't sound interested in those songs very much. He, he, yeah. I think I think you're right because he 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 was striving for something uh, a little bit more grander than that. I think he thought of himself as an as an artist first and maybe a musician second. I, and the reason I say that is when he's talking about a song later on that his brother sings on, he says that he cast his brother for that song. Who uses that terminology <laughs> when they're talking about their brother singing a song, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think, and, and when you look at the albums that came after this, they're very thematic mm -hmm. and, his, and his music has always had that element to it. So I think he was always, I think you're right. He wasn't necessarily looking for a hit machine. He wanted to do something different and music was his vehicle to do it. And the, the masses sort of didn't really quite get that. And uh, it's, it's uh, reminiscent of uh, Howlin' Wolf and Smokestack Lightning. Smokestack Lightning. Yeah, I think the Kinks used to play that song live, so it's not surprising they would. It's so funny that uh, that when the Kinks went to the United States, they're so disappointed to find out the American kids weren't into uh, people like Alan Wolf and Muddy Waters and all the ones that the uh, British bands were into. Yeah. Well, that, that happens a lot where the Brits will get into something that is very what what you would consider very American, but most Americans don't listen to it. Well, there's a lot of bands here in Austin that can't fill she, up a coffee house and they go over there and they start packing them in because yeah. they're different and new. Yeah. yeah. Big sky. I think of the big sky and nothing matters much to me. Big sky looks down on all the people who think they got problems. They get depressed and they hold their heads in their hands and they cry. Lift up their hands and they look up to the big sky. The big sky. All right. Like 
I know. And it's, it's so. very difficult for me to listen to that song and not put Montana into my head. Well, it's, is it about God guys? Well, Ray Davies, uh, declined to answer that question. I, well, it sounded like he was talking about God. Well, I think some people speculated that he's just talking about, and they, you know, he knows what he's talking about, but some people speculate the song's about just a, a power higher than the person singing about the song, the character singing about the song. So it could be God. It could be a prime minister or president. It could mm-hmm. be your boss, just someone who is, you know, too big and indifferent, too big to care and essentially indifferent and just sitting on the top of the pyramid. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a pretty good song. Um, it's not one of my favorites. I, when I go to England, I don't think about Big Sky, you know. Uh, <laughs> no, you're right. It, it's another one of those songs that sort of is a little bit odd in terms of what this album was supposed to be doing. Um, yeah. I do love the guitar riff in it. I think it's a fantastic guitar riff. It is and, a cool uh, guitar riff, yeah. Um, and it's another one of those songs. I think this one and the last one, if 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 people are right... Maybe Ray was feeling a little nervous about having an album that was so acoustic based and he wanted something that had a little bit more of a rocky edge to it. I mean, if that's the case, why didn't he release these as singles? Um, You know? Yeah, exactly. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, I like this song. It's it's not it's not my favorite on the album. It's no it's no last of the steam powered trains. That's for sure. (laughs) I I like this song quite a bit. And uh, I think one of the reasons I like it is because I didn't try to pin it down. I just, uh, yeah. If, if, I just have this picture of this guy looking at this big blue sky that's not going to change a bit for him, and it's going to keep being blue and sunny and all of this, no matter what the guy's going through. So, too bad, mm-hmm. guy. I'm the big blue sky, and uh, I can't be changing for your uh, your concerns. It, it really works in my mind, and I like the way it. Um, it has a spoken part, I, I think, that, oh, yeah, I think that works yeah. well. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, that's uh, I think that's a, a valid point. I think maybe people are maybe the reason he didn't answer the question about whether it's about God is because it's it's not. Maybe it is exactly what you're talking about. It's just okay. kind of about something so so enormous and, and, and it's indifference and not, is not because it chooses to, to be. It's just that's the way it is. It's just yeah. exists and it's not going to change regardless of what. What else yeah. is going on in your if, life? If there isn't a God, that doesn't change the fact that Big Sky doesn't care about you. Right. <laughs> right. The, uh, I don't well, know. It's. Yeah. I think it works. Uh, it. Oh, I think it's a fine song, but it just. It's one of those songs like, couldn't you put days in there instead? There <laughs> we go, man. You guys are obs- obsessed about or that. Or Mr. Songbird. We should yeah. do a whole. We should do a whole uh, extra. We'll do a bonus podcast on these guys and their poor hurt feelings about two songs that aren't on the album, even though they can hear those two songs anytime they want to. <laughs> Is it impossible to think that this song didn't somehow influence Freddie Mercury? Yep. 
I, 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 mean, I agree with you. I, yeah. I don't know how you listen to this and not think Freddie see Freddie Mercury as a young kid listening to this and it just soaking it up. You know, that is so weird. You said that because That's I thought so the exact same thing. This sounds like a Queen song to me. It does. <laughs> it does. And you can hear him sing. You can hear Freddie Mercury singing it. It's yeah. a it's a nice little ditty about, you know, yeah. sitting, sitting by the riverside, you know, watching the stuff go by. Uh, yeah. It's got a, It's got a I think the French accordion in it is a Mellotron as well. I don't think yeah, it's a it is. Accordion, yeah. so. That's the thing. The whole, I mean, it's just it's a it's a nice. Two and a half minutes, not even two and a half minutes. It's uh, just a nice little bucolic scene. It's one of the few songs on the album that actually takes me to the place that he's he's singing about. Oh, know? that's yeah, I could see that. Yeah, it it does feel it does feel very um, set in place. The song, yeah, yeah, very. It's almost like a place. It reminds me of a Randy Newman song, like. Randy Newman is one of the masters of just like setting a scene and putting you there and then, okay, the song's over. And that's how I feel about this song. It just sets a really nice scene. And, um, and the accordion sound is very nice. Well, this was a two and a half minute song and, uh, almost every song on this album is exactly two and a half minutes or a little less, except for one. You know which one? Steam. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, hey, just you know, for you too. Just for you two guys. Here's the thing about that. Another reason why the label didn't want to release this as a double album was, I believe, they Donovan was also on Pie Records, and he had released a double album that had gotten all sorts of backlash because it, you know, it, I think it clocked in at 60 minutes or something like that because the songs were so short. I mean, a twenty a twenty song album of songs this length is not going to feel like you're getting your money's worth, right? You know, yeah. so I think that was another reason. Um, it, it, but I've never I, heard of a record company wanting to put out a double album. Yeah, <laughs> well, for the most part, double albums aren't great. I think there's uh, there's very few that aren't you know don't have filler. I believe uh, the one that came out the same day this did is a <laughs> yeah, great example. No, a fine example of that. I was going to say that uh, you missed, you completely missed JM saying something positive about a song that was added uh, later when the two songs we've been mentioning were removed. So, see, there you go. There I go. I'm always, I'm always missing the kindness that you two demonstrate. <laughs> but we are going to flip this sucker over, which means somebody uh, thought it was a hit. Uh, Animal Farms next. This world is big and wild and half insane. Take me where real animals are playing. Just a dirty old check with a hand of bark. Let me call I want to be back there. Is this song released as a single? Yeah, was. was it? Yes, it was. It should be. I think. I think it sounds like a hit. Um, if anything on this album sounds like a hit, I think uh, Animal Farm. That that really it really grabs me. It's a good song. I I read about it. I was, I tried to figure out what it's about, and it's basically Ray Davies saying that we're all animals. It's so. a precursor to Eight Man. Sail away to a distant shore. 
song the kink song eight man it's kind of the same theme about the desire yeah. to escape uh modern existence into a more yeah. natural you know sort of russo-esque setting <laughs> <laughs> they uh some so of the uh, some of the uh, the commie haters out there like me are going to be upset to find out this has nothing to do with orwell's uh animal farm but you uh, know this this is one of the songs that they got in a big fight in in the studio because uh uh the bassist pete, pete Quaife wanted to uh wanted the piano bit to be done by the bass and dre and dave both said no <laughs> and so it's not there and he was he wasn't happy about that i think the piano fit bit uh, fits fine pete Quaife said that they threw a hissy fit all right all right next song is village green Earliest song recorded for the album. It's a very nice song about pining for village green areas in the London area. It's not the most rock and roll song you could possibly write. And it doesn't have a Mellotron on it. Nope. This well, one actually had a used orchestra. And, yeah. and and it's it's odd that as you said, JM, that it's a it's a nice song. I like the song a lot, but it's what inspired ray davies to make this a centerpiece idea of what he was going to be yeah. about, what he's going to be singing about um and and you are right it, it was it was a b-side to animal farm which was released as a single in japan so you're right about that being a single i thought i remembered seeing a japanese single um <laughs> yeah this is a song with the gall darn it line in it the Amer- <laughs> he has the american saying gall darn it when they visit the village green um, this is a very sentimental song. It reminds me of Our Town or something like that. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's, it's a good song. I like it. I like but, it. You know, what I we do, forgot but... to talk about was uh, the Dylan Thomas play. This whole album was um, based on what, what he was shooting for. Um, yeah, the uh, halcyon days of, <laughs> <laughs> of England before the war and before World War II and and what the parks were like, what life was like outside of London, what uh, a drive through the countryside was like. It was, a, it was a very different time. And I think that's what he's trying to capture with the this song in particular, but on most of this album, which is probably the least rock and roll thing you could do, especially what was about to come 10 years later with the punk movement. Where Which everything... uh, looked towards the kinks quite a bit. Yep. The uh, the uh, Dylan Thomas uh, play was Under Milkwood. That was yeah. what this, is, uh, this song was based on particularly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the first time I ever heard this song was not by the kinks. Hmm. There's a band. There's a band called the Figs out of New York. Yeah, and they, 
think they did this on their lo-fi and society high album did a cover of this and i loved it then it's enough to look for the kinks version because i didn't know it at that point um but yeah it's it's a fantastic song and the cover is fantastic too starstruck This is one of the most uh, self-complimenting uh, <laughs> songs anyone's ever it, written. It remind this song again. How I talked, I asked a question about about Queen. I don't see how this song didn't influence Bowie at some in some way. This song uh, sounds I agree very, with you. very Bowie-esque to, to me. You're a star. You come back to your hometown, and everything seems totally different from what it was when you left. And that's yeah. the experience that the Kinks had. Almost all the Kinks experienced that. Yeah. Which one? Which one did not come back as a star? The bass player. Yeah, <laughs> I was about to say the bass player. Um, <laughs> and this was this was actually this actually hit number thirteen in the Netherlands as a single. That's uh, every every band we researched. There's something strange about a hit in the Netherlands. Hmm. Um, so. You know, Ray Davies says that it's weird to think that they recorded this song because he doesn't. He says it doesn't sound like them. <laughs> I agree. I agree. It, it, and it doesn't sound like it belongs on this album. But somehow I like that it's on this album because he's talking about remembering his friends and all yeah. that. Well, then comes Phenomenal Cat. Hello. So before we get into this, I have a question for you. Why do you think it's, and it may just be two bands, but there are at least two fairly big bands of this era that both wrote a song, a British song, bands that both wrote a song with the cat as the main character in it. Pink Floyd wrote a song called Lucifer Sam about a Siamese cat. Lucifer Sam, Siam cat. Always sitting by your side, always by your side. That cat's something I can't explain. And then there's this one that's actually called Phenomenal Cat. What do you think the deal is there? It's kind of odd. Well, it's uh, weren't all the uh, stoners and the LSD guys into Alice in Wonderland and that cat sitting on top of the that Chester yeah. cat? Uh, maybe. Yeah, maybe. I know that um, I used to go into a head shop in Doby Mall on, on the drag in Austin and they had I was a little kid and I thought, this is so neat. Look at that caterpillar on top of the toadstool <laughs> and the big smiley cat. And oh, wow. every, you know, it was a stoner deal. And the, I'm sure the stoners sat there and stared at it and, and enjoyed it like they enjoyed the bo most boring part of 2001 yeah. A Space Odyssey. 
maybe I'm just a dope, but a lot of times I can't uh, I can't distinguish a Mellotron for what it's supposed to sound like. But this to me sounds, even though it's playing the flute sound, it's got this weird almost pump organ sound behind mm-hmm. the flute that sounds yeah. artificial to me. Yeah. I mean, not bad, but it doesn't sound. I know it's supposed to be a flute, but you can tell it's not a flute. To me, it's one of the more use the term psychedelic. It's it's one of the more psychedelic. So well, everybody else it. thinks it was. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's got some weird, like the vocals switch from one side to the other. And the equalization is different on them. It's, it's a pretty cool song. I, I, it, I do it's like got, it. Yeah. And the, speaking of the vocals, it's got Dave's voice is sped up to sound like the cat in that. Yeah. Down, down. yeah. Same part. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. I feel about this calling the song psychedelic in the same way I feel about calling stuff on Odyssey and Oracle psychedelic. It's, it feels, I mean, I can get, I understand what you're saying and the subject matter seems that way. And I could see, you know, someone uh, getting into an altered state of mind and really enjoying this song in a way that maybe you wouldn't otherwise. But, uh, but it, it definitely feels, I don't know. It feels very rooted in kind of a weird kind of folk thing too, to me. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I agree, I agree with you there. It does sound like kind of a. It could be. It could have been written a thousand years ago, almost. Yeah. But it is. It is. Uh, it's easily one of my favorite songs in the album. I really like yeah. this song a lot. Yeah. And then we go to all my friends were there. All of my friends were there. Not just my friends. Their best friends. All of my friends were there to stand and stare, say what they may. All of their friends did not stand. Well, supposedly Ray Davies was performing at an R&B concert and he had a 104 degree fever. And because of the contract, they were going to make him perform anyway. Uh, I don't know if that's the way. I guess that's the way rock stars are treated back then. And so he thought, he thought, well, I've got to play anyway. Why don't I just get ripping rip drunk? So he 104 degree fever. He has lots to drink. And the curtains open up and he sees all of his friends sitting in the front row. And he <laughs> proceeds to make a grade A jackass out of himself. And so he... He goes, uh, he says uh, in this quote I read, he said, uh, it was a terrible night, so I thought I'd write a song about it. That's essentially <laughs> what it's about. <laughs> so, he saw, so he saw his best friends and he saw his best friend's best friends. Yeah, and, I don't know, but he didn't say that, but I'm assuming they were there because uh, it's if it's autobiographical. Boy, does it sound like he's having fun singing the song, though. And it sounds mm-hmm. very much like things to come from the kinks and especially his performance. Yeah. Um, it's very kind of melodramatic uh, stage yeah. presence that he has, um, you know. Yeah. Wicked Annabella. Jane and I know her, right? <laughs> Just kidding, Annabelle. Um, she's not wicked. And she's not wicked. 
and she's very nice. She's very nice. Nicer than uh, your host. Wicked Annabella, uh, this is one of the ones that uh, Dave sings. Yeah, and you know why he sings it. This is the one he cast, uh, Ray cast him to sing it. (laughs) It said he cast him to sing it because it had power chords in it. So he felt like it was a good match. Well, it's about, it's supposedly about a, a, like a, I don't know, this, I mean, there's multiple stories. The funny thing about Ray Davies is he very rarely is consistent when he talks about what these songs are about. There's always a slight little twist in what it's almost like he's goading the the reader to think, well, if you read this previously, you're not going to get the same story about this. This one he says is about some lady who lived with her mom uh, and, and her mom was a widow and they lived in this big house. And then later on, he says that she uh, uh, this woman was it was about a woman who was sexually out of his league. Um, and so, you know, who knows? Anyway, it's just bizarre. That he can't keep it straight. He can't keep it, the story straight about what the song's about. Other than I think you're right, Jam. It's just about someone who, like a Hansel and Gretel witch or something. <laughs> it's a well, and if, if you, uh, it's a one of those stories they tell kids to get them to behave. Yeah. Well, but if you don't practice your piano, you're going to be a bass player when you grow up. <laughs> <laughs> And up next is another lady. Uh, This one is Monica. This is a song about prostitute. <laughs> prostitute. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This song. This song's got. This song sounds. I don't know what it is about the Kinks, but the, throughout their career, they always seem to dive in this little kind of Spanish flair thing to me. And yeah. this song's one of those things. This kind of where they they do that. You know, they get this kind of weird. Uh, I don't know. Um, I don't know what part of Europe that is. I'm just going to say that sort of Span- Spanish Italy you know, Mediterranean, I guess, European thing. And they do that from time to time. Um, I think most famously Come Dancing feels that way to me. But they do it off and on throughout their career. Um, you know, uh, it's when he was talking about this album in a in a in a Q magazine interview, he's talking about this, and I guess the song before it, and Ray Davies said that it's a very sexy album. There's a lot of sex on it. Uh it, you know, um, I don't is this a sexy album? <laughs> There's two I songs. Like, uh, sexy and the kinks go together. Um <laughs> other than their name. Yeah, and uh I think uh, Ray Davies is pretty famous for hating that name. Oh, the Kinks? Yeah, he did not like that name. He still doesn't like it, but it was one syllable and it was cutting edge. So there you go. If uh, they, if they hadn't have taken it, I'm sure a punk band would have picked it up in the 70s. Yeah. He gets uh he's getting better and better at doing these uh character studies that make up a 
big part of his songwriting. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, and I always think of that, you know, it's important. I think he ought to announce that in every album that he puts out. These are character studies. These are not about me. And here we are about pictures again. People take pictures of each other. Why are you doing the things that you're doing? Uh, because you don't want to be forgotten. And it's a just a, a very subtle sentiment, I think. Very well, well done. And, and almost more than any other song, it, it, at least looking at it through today's eyes, feels like it's very much uh, yeah. speaking to the world we live in compared to the world we used to live in. Yeah. Um, and, and the value of having a photograph and what that meant to people instead of kind of the throwaway world we live in where you take 15 snaps of the same image and pick the one that looks best. You know, yeah. it's not really you're not really capturing a moment in time. You're you're mugging for that moment in time rather than just a capture. Uh, I read a, a cool story that he said that uh, about this song and he's and he's talking about that very thing. And he goes, uh this is a quote from me. He goes, I know a guy, he's a homeless guy, and I chat with him sometimes in the street. He's got a picture of his family in his pocket, and he's always got that picture f- uh, with him for when things get really low. And mm. so, I mean, you're not going to get that by pulling out a phone and looking at a digital copy of what's on the phone, right? Having that 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 kind of yeah. faded, warped picture means, you know, I've got a Polaroid of me and my, uh, me and my grandfather um, from 1992, and uh I love that picture. It's fantastic. And I look at it all the time and it feels more real because of that, you know? Pictures became so easy and uh, so throwaway, as you said. It's it's a whole different thing. My you don't have is- to wait for them to come from the drugstore anymore. That, yeah. that anticipation yeah. to see your pictures. Do you get them back yet? No, it's one more week. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or, or you look through them and, and discard the ones that ended up being, you know, <laughs> not not that great and getting your getting your five cents back per picture or whatever well that was but later yeah. uh tony uh, us old guys we don't remember that part <laughs> tony that brings us to the end of another fantastic album one that i think a lot of people have overlooked and will benefit from adding to their collection um usually at this time you help us out with something new Something for the kids. What do you got for us tonight, Tony? Well, I thank you, Doug. I don't have an album uh, to talk about tonight, but I would like to just recommend something that I found really fascinating when I was doing research for this particular podcast. There is a, a podcast called Mixology, um, and this gentleman uh, whose full name I don't know, he goes by Frederick, is uh, a British gentleman who... Uh, likes to talk about and, and demonstrate the difference between songs of this era, their their mono and their stereo versions. And there is a, a considerable difference between those versions. And so he did it he did an episode actually not that long ago on February 24th of this year. It's only about a half an hour long where he talks about this album, the the Kinks or the Village Green Preservation Society. And he breaks down the the difference between the mono and the stereo mixes. Um 
And it's really, really interesting if you like that kind of stuff. So I, I recommend dialing that up. I, I've listened to it on Amazon. I'm sure you can find it on any podcast thing. It's again, it's called Mixology, and it's the I think it's episode number twenty two about about this album, The Kinks or the Village Green Preservation Society. You might you might learn you something. Well, that's it for tonight's show. Next week, album war. Sex Pistols, Never Mind the Bullocks versus the Ramones, their first album. Look us up on Facebook and we're on Instagram as well. And we're on Twitter at Tapping Vinyl. Or you can email us anytime at tappingvinyl at gmail.com. Leave us a note or a review or tell us what albums you'd like us to consider in an upcoming show. And if you know of anyone that likes music or the LP format, be sure and let them know about this podcast. We would love to spread the word. For our host, Doug Cooper, our co-host, Tony Slagle, and me, your humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe. This is Final Tap, where all the podcasts go to 11. And on behalf of all of us here at This is Final Tap, Live on water and feed on the lightning. Guesting on NPR's All Songs Considered, musician-producer John Vandersye selected All My Friends Were There as his pick for the perfect song. Na, 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 na. <laughs> Why did you play the Jeopardy theme at the end of that? I was trying to do the... Uh, oh, the NPR yeah, thing? I haven't listened in a while. I'll admit it. My tolerance da, for the... Da, 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 da. <laughs> Huh. This evening. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Excuse us, uh, kind audience. <laughs>